Amen. Thank you, Vicki. So our scripture reading this morning comes from the first three chapters of Genesis. We're taking a break from the series we've been doing in First and Second Samuel to do a four-week series during Advent. Uh, and we begin at the beginning in Genesis chapter 1. Now, it's going to be hard. We piece together this material. It's a long reading even so. Uh, it's printed for you in your worship folder, and uh, it'll be on the screen behind me. If you want to grab a Bible, you can, but you'll have to move around because we're going pretty quickly through chapter 1 and then into chapter 2 and then ultimately chapter 3. So let's, let's begin together. Uh, hang in there as we read this uh, because it really is something that needs to be taken in the whole. So let's read. Beginning in chapter 1, verse 1 of the scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then skipping to chapter 2. And these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole of the face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Well, you can anticipate what's coming in chapter 3. So when the woman saw that that forbidden tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together to, and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Well, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you to not eat? The man said, as men have been saying ever since, The woman that you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate and then the Lord God said to the woman what is this that you have done and the woman not to be outdone by the man said the serpent deceived me and I ate and the Lord God said to the serpent because you have done this cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly you shall go and the dust of you shall eat all the days of your life and I this is the, the key verse verse 15 and I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take hold also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is the word of the Lord. Would you say with me? 
The grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our God, it stands forever. Amen. Let me ask you a question. What is the main, if you're familiar with the Bible, if you're familiar with Christianity, how would you answer? What is the main narrative tension in the Bible? Because if we can determine what the main narrative tension in the Bible is, we can determine what the main narrative tension in all of life is. Now, do you know what I mean by narrative tension? When you read a book and you get caught up in the story or when you go to the movie and you, and you just get swept away by what you're watching and you can't wait, really with books, you can't wait to see what happens, uh, you can't wait to see how it ends, you maybe stay up till two or three in the morning finishing the book, that's because there's a narrative tension. There's a mystery that needs to be solved or there is a love story that's in peril that desperately needs a happily ever after or there's a villain that it looks like is going to win, that needs to be defeated. That is the narrative tension. It's what drives the story along. It is the main storyline and plot that, that everything else is just details to really make sense of. Now, the main narrative tension of the Bible, as I understand it anyway, and as I've, I've done some you know reading even this week on this, the main narrative tension of the Bible is God and man dwelling together in close, personal relationship with one another. It's what we see here in the garden and what we see being lost in chapter 3. And then the rest of the entire story of the Bible is telling the story of how God has worked, and only God, all God has worked to recapture what was lost from the very beginning so that man and God could be together again, dwelling together in close, personal relationship with one another. Augustine famously said, you have made us for yourself, O God, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So how can we enjoy the kind of personal, intimate, close relationship and closeness with God that will put our restless hearts at rest? And from beginning to end... That is the drama of the Bible, and therefore it is also the main drama of all of life, really, I think. And it really is remarkable the way even here you see it laid out in the way that most stories are. And we're just going to follow along. And really, if you want to plot out the story of the Bible, you could just put it in these three acts. There's creation, and there's fall, and then there's redemption or recreation. And so we're just, we're pretty straightforward this morning, okay? That's what you do in Advent. You just stick to the main things. When Christmas comes around, don't get fancy. Just talk about Christmas, right? Just talk about Jesus. So that's what we're going to do. But we're going to see it play out in these different acts. In the first act, in creation, you see humanity enjoying God. And then in the fall, you see humanity losing God. But then in the movement toward redemption, you see God finding humanity. And that really is how we're going to trace this out together as well. Okay, so first, let's look. And you see... I mean, this is the creation account, and so we're going to talk about creation first, which is the beginning of the story. It's the first act, and there we see humanity enjoying God. And the creation here is described as both a garden and a temple. And both images are really important to our understanding of this text, okay? So let's look at each as we walk through this for just a bit. So first, a garden. Now, you'll notice the word is explicitly used throughout the text, Verse 8 of chapter 2, for example, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, when the Old Testament was translated into Greek, the Greek translation of that word is paradisios, paradise. 
And in the ancient world, kings would have beautiful gardens attached to their palaces where they would go to entertain people and to walk and to keep company with visitors and to enjoy themselves, particularly when the weather was really good. Now, the text suggests, if you get underneath it a little bit, that it was a normal occurrence for the Lord God to go walking in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day to be with the man and the woman. That is a remarkable thing on its face. That the garden here was a paradise because it was a place of enormous beauty and abundance, but most of all, the garden was a paradise for the man because it was the one place in the whole world where they could be with God. The one place in all that was made where God would come to walk and talk with them. Now, it was meant for their enjoyment. All of it, the trees and the rivers and the scenery and the food, all of it, but most of all, God himself. Now, I've gotten a bit ahead of myself, so let me back up for just a minute and say that the garden itself was the result of the overflow of a love that already existed before the creation. Because in Genesis chapter 1, you begin there with the words, in the beginning, God. Which means that God existed even before the beginning. That the beginning was not, in fact, the beginning. It was the beginning of God creating, but before God was creating, he was already loving. Christianity has long held to the doctrine of the Trinity. And if God is Trinity, then he is fundamentally love. He is a community of persons, an eternal relationship, an eternal intimacy between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So at the heart of all things is a heart. Love is the fountain of the universe. Creation was an act of imaginative love. It was the overflow. Creation itself, the world we live in, was the overflow of the laughter and the joy and the delight of the persons of the Trinity as they eternally related to one another. Isn't that amazing? But now here's the argument, okay? Here's the argument. If loving personal relationship existed before creation, and if the creation itself was the overflow of that loving personal relationship between God the Father God the Son and God the Spirit, then the goal of creation was loving personal relationship with God the Trinity. God and man, together, face to face, walking and talking in the palace gardens in the cool of the day. Direct, immediate, intimate relationship between God and man. Now, this when it was written was something the world had never seen before because in the ancient Babylonian mythologies, Marduk created humanity to be his slaves. And the world in those stories was pictured as a desert waste, a workhouse for the gods. But in Genesis, the setting of the creation is a garden. It is a place of gratuitous beauty, of unnecessary abundance, and it all speaks to the largesse of the Lord God. And when you read, the words that are repeated again and again in Genesis 1 and 2 are good, pleasant, delight. 
And the whole point is we were made by love and we were made for love. We were created by God. We were created for God. The goal of creation is humanity enjoying all that God has made and enjoying God most of all. Now, this is reinforced by a second image, and that second image is that this creation is not just a garden, it is also a temple. The creation was a temple, and in the ancient world, the temple was the house of the God. It was the place where the God lived, where the worshipers would go to meet with whatever God they were worshiping. And the language of Genesis 1 and 2, used again in the Old Testament to describe the tabernacle or temple in great detail, it suggests that the garden should also be understood in this way, as a sanctuary, as a temple, as a house for the Lord God. Because in Genesis 2.15, for example, it says that God put the man and the woman in the garden, look there at the language, to work it and to keep it, it says there. And everywhere else in the Bible, those two words, especially when they are used together, they refer to the work of the priests in the tabernacle or the temple. And so the Garden of Eden was the first temple, and Adam and Eve were the first priests. And this too suggests that the garden was a container for God's relational presence where man and God could live together in close, intimate, face-to-face relationship. And we have to make sense of all of these things. So C.S. Lewis pretty famously said that God designed humanity to run on himself, that he is the fuel that our spirits were designed to burn, that he is the food that we were meant to feed on. And he went on to say that there is no happiness, there's no peace, no health apart from God, which is to say that apart from God's presence, apart from this intimate, immediate, close, personal relationship with him, there is no happiness. There's no happiness for humanity without being relationally and emotionally connected with the one who has made them daily, walking and talking with him. As weird as that sounds. And I know it sounds weird because, of course, we can't hear him. And we can't see him, but the Bible says even though we can't hear him and we can't see him, we can love him. And we can abide in him. And we can have fellowship with him. And all of these words. See, the job, the job the, the God, that, that God gave to the man was just this. And the job he gives to us is to cultivate, to cultivate our lives, to cultivate our relationship with the Lord God, and to guard against anything and everything that would seek to get in and spoil it. So here's how the text would have us think. You are a garden and a temple. It's 1 Corinthians 3. In 1 Corinthians 3.9, it calls you God's field, God's garden. In 1 Corinthians 3.16, it calls you the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are a garden and you are a temple, but so is your home, so is your marriage, so is your job, so are your friendships. Your home is a garden and a temple. Your job is a garden and a temple. Your, your friendships and your marriage and your relationships with your kids, they are a garden and a temple. And your job is to cultivate all of these places as holy ground and then guard against anything that might get in and ruin things. The garden, which was also a temple, was a place to be with God because we are the flower and he is the sunshine and the rain. And without him, without knowing him, without being connected to him this way, the way the branches are to the vine, we shrivel up and die because we were made to enjoy God and to know him. Now, of course, all of that's gotten messed up, hasn't it? Because we see it in the very next part in the fall, which is the crisis. So there's a crisis. Humanity enjoying God is what we're made for, but 
humanity losing God is the reality that we often have to live with. And the, the main image here is the image of exile. And so Genesis 3 tells the story of the fall, of humanity losing God because of sin. And sin is just trying to live without God, without knowing, to know without God, to decide right and wrong without God, to seek happiness apart from God. And the man did not keep the garden as he was told because we find very quickly in the story that the serpent got in and he whispered his lies and they believed him and everything began to fall apart. See, they, they were told not to eat from the one tree, which is the exact thing they did, the thing they were told not to do. They were told to believe God and trust him for everything which is what they failed to do and to keep the garden against everything that would spoil it. And so you have the sins of omission and sins of commission here. So sin is not doing what God commands. Sin is also doing what God forbids. And so kids, you've been learning the catechism. You could say, what is sin? Sin is any lack of conformity to or transgression of God's law. The world is broken, yes. And we are broken. But we are not simply malfunctioning. We are not machines that need to be fixed. We are transgressors that need to be forgiven because the main problem of our lives is that we've become alienated from God. That's our problem. That's the root of everything that's wrong in the world. And that's the first lesson of these chapters in Genesis. And the second is this, that that alienation from God as a result of sin, it brings severe consequences because without God, we are not only guilty and condemned, we are miserable. I mean, what's the cause of all of our unhappiness in life? I think that's a really important question to answer. And every ideology has its own answer to that question. Christianity does too. What's the cause of all of the unhappiness in the world, of all of our unhappiness in the world? And here's the way the Bible would lead us to answer our, that question. Well, first to say, well, it's not someone else's fault. You can't blame anyone else. The text won't let you do that. This text is a mirror, not a window. The text is forcing you to look at yourself and to acknowledge, to admit that at its root, all of our happy, unhappiness, all of our restlessness, all of our discontent, all of our grief and pain is because we have lost God. We have lost his loving gaze. We are without the glory that comes only from God, what theologians call the original righteousness, that this deep sense of rightness and at homeness. And that restness that comes from being completely known and completely loved by the one who's made us. And there are real practical consequences. They ate the fruit, it says. And their eyes were open and they became aware of their nakedness and it was a terrifying vulnerability. And so they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves and then when they heard the Lord God coming, walking through the garden as he would. They dove into the bushes to hide from him. All of this is in Genesis 2. And when he confronted them, this is what the man said in there in chapter 2, verse 10. He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, this is how I know the Bible is true. That is so profound. It is such an elegant piece of psychology and sociology. It is so true my own experience of dealing with my own self and dealing with so many of you. I heard the sound of you and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked and so I hid. Sin results in deep shame that robs us of the intimacy and love that we are meant to have with God. 
this conscious awareness of his presence, of his love, his smile. The Jesus Storybook Bible says this so well, I really can't improve on it. It says it like this, it says, they had always been naked, but now they felt naked. Isn't that a great line? They've always, they had always been naked, but now they felt naked and wrong. Usually, Adam and Eve loved to hear God's voice and would run to him, but this time they ran away from him and hid in the shadows. And that is the reason for all our unhappiness. Instead of just being naked, we feel naked, and it feels wrong. Instead of running to God for comfort when we're afraid, we are afraid of him and we run away from him to other things that can bring no comfort. Instead of deep relational connection with God and one another, we experience deep, profound, crippling alienation. But here's the thing you have to see. The problem is not on God's side. The text is clear on that too. We do not go looking for God, unable to find him because he's hiding himself from us, disgusted, just so frustrated with all the mess that we've made. No, God in the text, God comes looking for us and has to call out, where are you? Because we're the ones hiding. We're the ones running away from him, not the other way around. We have lost God, but it's our own doing. The scriptures say it this way, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. So alienation, see, is not just an emotion or a mood. It is a state of being. It is a dislocation. It is a deep, unsettling, not at homeness that we live with all of the time. And what you see here in the text is Genesis 3 ends on a very, very sour note. It ends with exile. Because look there in verses 24 and right around there. God, it says, the Lord God sent them out from the garden. It actually says in verse 24, he drove them out. That's really harsh. He drove them out to wander, cut off from his presence to the east, east of Eden. And then he posted cherubim there, which were angels with flaming swords to guard, look at that word, to guard the way back in, to keep them out, lest they eat of the tree of life and remain in this state forever. Now it's interesting though, that that word that I mentioned there in Genesis 3.12, the word Guard there in 324 is the same word as the word that was given to Adam as his commission in Genesis 2.15. The man, look at this, like think about this. I just want you to, the man was to guard the garden against anything that would spoil it. But by the end of the story, the cherubim are stationed to guard the garden against the man. You see that? That's a, that's, a, that's a wrecking ball to the pride of fallen man. I mean, that's, that's a wrecking ball to, that God now has to guard the beautiful things that he's made from you and me. And what's the lesson here? Well, he who has God and nothing else has everything. <laughs> and he who has everything but not God has nothing. Humanity with God properly connected emotionally and relationally to the Lord God is an incredible potential force for good in the world. But humanity without God is a wrecking ball, is a destructive force. And that, that, that two, those two options go for your work, for your friendships, for your marriages, for everything, okay? And we have to, we have to let that sit on our soul. But 
the good news is, is we don't have to end our time together there. Isn't that good news? Because the text doesn't end there, okay? We, Advent is a time to sit into the, in the middle of, of the, the real reality of all that we've said so far and to acknowledge it, but also to turn our hearts and our, our eyes towards the hope of the gospel. And that's what we want to do by finishing with redemption. And redemption, the promise of redemption here is the happily ever after. And the happily ever after can be defined like this, God finding humanity. And the image here at the very end of this text and at the very end of our time together is the image of a child. Now notice the way I said that though, God finding humanity, I worded it that way on purpose because to this point, it has all been man's doing. It has all been our doing. But from this point forward, from Genesis 4 all the way to the end of Revelation 22, it will all be God's doing. And here is the, the clear message of everything that the Bible is teaching us. We don't find God. God has to find us. We don't seek him. He has to come seeking us. We don't make our way to him clawing ourselves there through moral effort, God has to come and make his way to us. And this is illustrated in the flow of the story, even in Genesis, because if you pick up the story there in chapter 4, all the way to, verse, to chapter 11, the, the action as you listen to it, what's happening is, is it's, the action is shifting further and further and further to the east. They were thrown out of the garden to the east, and then they just keep going further and further and further to the east. Further and further and further into their sin and rebellion. Further and further and further into their fallenness and lostness. Further and further and further away from God. And things get worse and worse. And there is no, listen, there is no human renaissance. There's only the grace of God. The Apostle Paul said it profoundly straightforwardly like this. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. Not one, he says. Not one person who has ever been made could dare to claim that they have sought the Lord without him first seeking them or that they were good on their own merits. It's just straightforward. See, there is an element of hope in the text but the hope is not that we will finally figure out how to get our act together. Instead, the hope is this, that there would be one who would come. There would be one who would seek God. There would be one who would be good. There would be one who in his coming would bring us back to God. There would be a child. And listen again to the words that, that the Lord God gives to the serpent, the curse to the serpent, verse 15 in chapter 3. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And if you have an ESV Bible, there's a footnote. And if you look down at the footnote, you'll see that that word offspring could be translated seed or child. Now, here's the thing. Not children, child. Not children, plural. Child, singular, which is made clear in the second couplet there. When he says, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, singular. This is called, you ready for a fancy word? They would tell you in seminary, you got to pull out the really fancy words every now and then just to make sure they know that you know what you're talking about, okay? And so there's a word that we use, the proto-euangelion, the first gospel. And that's right here. It really is remarkable, if you think about it, that right in the middle of all of this bad stuff that we've been talking about, God promises good. As the world is tearing apart 
in a way that we still profoundly experience it today, God was already beginning to the work of putting it back together again because he said that there would be a child, a hero, a Messiah, and he would stomp on the head of the serpent. He would untangle his lies. He would bring God and man back together again, and then together with that remade humanity, he would heal the world of all that had been ruined by sin. Now, how would he accomplish that work? Well, that's also alluded to in the text because it says, if you look down at verse 21, that the fallout of this, the Lord God, it says there, it's really subtle, but don't miss it, that the Lord made skins for the man and the woman to cover their nakedness. Do you see that verse 21? Which, if you read it, presumed a sacrifice. So there it is, right there in Genesis chapter 3, that the solution to our badness is not our goodness. The solution to our badness is not the recovery of some goodness. The solution to our badness is substitution, is the gospel, it's the cross. The threat was that if they ate of the tree, they would die, but they did not die. How is that? Well, they did not die because another died in their place to cover their nakedness. But it says here, it goes on to kind of put all this together, that this child who would come would crush the serpent's head there, Genesis 3.15. But in the process of stepping on the snake's head, he would be bitten and bruised by the one he's crushing. He would deal the death blow to evil, but only by dying himself. Now, here's what we know. Jesus Christ is the seed. He is the serpent crusher. Jesus came to live the life that we should have lived. He is the second Adam, the one and the only one who seeks God, the one and the only one who does good. Adam failed to obey God. We see that right here in the text. Jesus obeyed in everything. And Jesus came to die the death that we should have died as the sacrifice for our sins so that we in our vulnerability and nakedness might be clothed in his righteousness that we might stand before God complete, lacking nothing. And so by all of that, he might destroy the serpent and his lies. But here's what I want you to see because we need to finish. The power of sin as it still prevails in our hearts and lives today is based on the wrong ideas we carry all the way thousands and thousands of years later about who God is and and what his heart is really like. The power of sin, as it still prevails, is this doubting of God's goodness and love. And again, the Jesus Storybook Bible does such a great job here too. Here's the way in the story they say it. The snake slithers up to Eve, and this is what he says. Does God really love you? If he does, why won't he let you eat the nice, juicy, delicious fruit? Poor you. Perhaps God doesn't want you to be happy. And that is the lie. That is the power of sin. But here's what you need to see. The, power, the problem is on our side. And so to get God and man back together again, you have to do something about the fear and the shame and the unbelief that still lives in our hearts that keep us running away from the only one who can heal us. And that's what the incarnation is all about, isn't it? The incarnation is God running toward man, God's heart on display, the love of God in human flesh, God taking all of the initiative, coming all the way, doing everything. I mean, do you believe, do you believe that God loves you? It's hard, isn't it, sometimes? I mean, do you believe Teenagers, students, do you believe that God wants you to be happy? I mean, what about Jesus? What does it all mean? I mean, Jesus' parable of the prodigal son pictures man as a son running away from his father, and God is pictured as a father running towards his runaway son. Why would you assume 
your love for God, but doubt God's love for you when you're the one running away from him and he's the one running toward you. His heart for you is never the problem. It's your heart for him. That's what keeps getting in the way of the kind of relationship with him that you're meant to have and that you need. Don't you see? Hebrews 12 says it like this. It says, Jesus came to earth and endured the cross because there was a joy that was set before him. And that joy so captured his heart that he endured the shame of the cross. It was as if it was nothing. And it begs the question as you read that, what did Jesus not have before the incarnation, before the cross? What was that joy that was required of him to come and die and be raised? And if you read it, I think Tim Keller was the one who said this originally. He said, the only answer that makes any sense is that the joy set before Jesus by which he endured the cross was you. You are that joy. For the joy of having you, for the joy of being with you, you with him, him with you, forever and ever, he came and he endured the cross because you are his great joy. So what's the takeaway? And I think the takeaway is this. When you're most prone to ask in your life, where are you, God? I mean, that's a good question, isn't it? It's a really good question. But most of the time when you're most prone to ask, where are you, God? It's hardly ever the right question. In the text, the man doesn't say, where are you, God? <laughs> it's God who says to the man, hey, where are you? Where'd you go? What happened to you? What's going on? And so here's my question to you this morning. Where are you? Are you running? Are you hiding? Are you shut down emotionally? Or are you just so afraid you can barely function? Are you full of self-pity? Where are you? That's the question. That's the starting place. That's what you have to get in touch with. And then like the prodigal, here's what I would hope for some of us this morning is we would begin to answer that question that we might, in realizing the way we're running away from the Lord God, that we might turn around and head home. That's repentance. That you stop running away from him and you turn towards him. But here is the wonderful news of the gospel that as you turn away from running away and turn back towards him, the surprise is the minute you turn around, you see him running towards you. Isn't that great? The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. It's the very thing that Jesus in the gospel has made possible. God and sinners reconciled. Amen? That's the message of Christmas. As Charles Wesley said, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Amen. Pray with me if you would. So, Father, give us the courage to acknowledge that indeed we, most of the time, are the problem. That we are so prone to lay the blame at your feet when we should take it for ourselves. Forgive us and turn us back towards you. And as we do, would you melt our hearts with the sight of you running towards us in Jesus? What good news the incarnation is that in Jesus Christ, God has become man so that God and man may dwell together again. Would you settle our hearts with that wonderful truth and work in us faith and repentance this morning that leads not only to eternal life, but to fruit that we might bear that would honor and glorify your name. And we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen, despite all of our clumsiness and failure, the seed of the woman is alive. 
and he is stomping on the head of the serpent. And Jesus is coming into his kingdom, which the Father is giving him, and he will come again once all things have been put under his feet. And that is that living hope that we live with. And so Christmas points us toward the future, too, a future where uh, we will once again dwell with God and, and him with us. And uh, it will be the consolation of every heart. There will be no more tears or crying or pain. But until that day, we go with the promise of his presence with us because of uh, the work of Christ on our behalf. So if your faith is in the Lord Jesus, receive this benediction as he sends you now as a messenger of that hope. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. God bless you. Go in his peace.